0: Don't let the stars get in your eyes, don't let the moon
1: break your heart. Love blooms at night, in
0: daylight it dies, don't let the stars get in your eyes. Hello and
2: welcome to The Greatest Show on Grass, a podcast about the past, past, present, and future of the Los Angeles Rams. That was Perry Como with the 1953 hit, Don't Let the Stars Get in Your Eyes. This episode is about two Los Angeles Rams guards of the 1950s, one real and one fictional. As we've discussed over and over on this podcast, for better and worse, the allure of stardom has been a common theme throughout LA Rams history. From the team's early days, Hollywood Rams emerged as a euphemism for the team's star centrism, simultaneously signifying how entertaining they were, while asking the question whether that star centrism was a good thing. As Los Angeles Times columnist Jim Murray quipped, this team was put together by Irving Thalberg, right? It originally starred Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. Pat O'Brien was the coach and Ronald Reagan was the halfback who died in the end. 1953 was a high watermark for the Hollywood Rams. The team had stars everywhere you looked Crazy Legs Hirsch, the Dutchman Norm Van Brocklin, Tom Fears, Deacon Dan Towler, Paul Tank Younger, and second year defensive back Dick Night Train Lane. But it also had hardworking grunt John Hawk, a 6'2. 230-pound guard, with little Hollywood about him other than his classically square jawline. Hollywood's Team is the title of the book recently written by John Hawk's son Jim Hawk, exploring the grit and glamour of the 1950s L.A. Rams. Though it's ostensibly a showcasing of never-been-heard stories that John Hawk shared with his son over the years, as well as those gathered from Rams greats Ron Waller, Dwayne Putnam and Harry Thompson, who, by the way, attended L.A. High School just around the corner from our studio. It's also a fascinating look at how a city came to embrace pro sports for the first time and how a sports franchise came to capture a place as unique and sometimes peculiar as Los Angeles. The Rams didn't just play in Los Angeles. They were Los Angeles. Working in the U.S. government probably sometimes seems as nasty and brutish as an NFL offensive line, so the education Jim Hawk received from his father likely served him well. Until recently, Jim Hawk served as chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Penny Pritzker in the U.S. Department of Commerce, coordinating public affairs efforts for the agency's 12 bureaus and more than 40,000 employees, and serving as a liaison to the White House. He talked to me about his new book from his office in Washington, D.C. The book is called Hollywood's Team, Great Glamour mm-hmm. and the 1950s Los Angeles Rams. I, I, I can't help but um, think that your father is sort of an unlikely protagonist of this book because he wasn't a very Hollywood personality. <laughs>
3: Exactly. It's a great question. And the premise of the book, Josh, is really, um, you know, whereas my dad's the protagonist, like I was fascinated with always, and I've been fascinated always, whether it's in business or politics or whatever profession that I've been in, that, you know, the folks that get the glamor, um, are in the front, you know, it's kind of the front of the house and the back of the house, if you use a kind of a restaurant or hotel word, um, there's people that are always in the back of the house, the, the the kind of everyday people that make up any team, any business, any city run. And, you know, I think my dad, embodied that type of person. He was a real quiet kind of workhorse, but I also think the offensive linemen are those types of folks, right? They don't, they don't do it for the glory. They're highly intelligent, um, you know, folks, cause they have to remember comp, complex blocking schemes, but they just do their job. Right. And then they come home and, and there's not a lot of kind of hype. You know, my dad was a guy who you know, even when we were kids would you know we'd be at n f l games and his friends would come up and he said, "Hey, you know, don't ask for an autograph; they're just like you and me yeah, um, and it always just stuck with me uh but I think there's a larger lesson for me there was a, always a larger lesson that there's people that make things go." And that's even in Hollywood, right? You have the grips and the folks who are holding lights and, and you know, the back and production people that really make things happen. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the stars get a lot of the glory and, you know, producers like you get glory when you do thirty for 30s. But, sure. um, you know, but most people that are working in any aspect of society, um, you know, don't. But that's how you know, our society functions and drives. And so really the premise of the book was, you know, here's this really glamorous city. It's, it's exploding with growth post-World War II. Uh, Hollywood was like in its glamour days um, in a lot of ways, but there are a lot of people in the city that were just regular Joes that, um, or Janes that came from, you know, Oklahoma or, you know, Ohio or Nebraska and moved there for, you know, greater opportunity who were just either working in a manufacturing line or, um, you know, or playing for an NFL team on the offensive line. So that's what I tried to capture. And that juxtaposition throughout the book was, and that was a very conscious, deliberate decision um, throughout the book.
2: In what ways did those Rams teams of the 50s um, um, capture what was going on in Hollywood for you?
3: Well, I think, I mean, you know, the number one, and you asked the question of, like, the stories about my dad, you know, what are the stories he told? You know, there was a story of my mother, um, and it's story story as much about my mom as well, because they, um, you know, part of it's, you know, about their meeting and falling in love, and they grew up right... Right in the neighborhood, right near the Coliseum, right within blocks, both of them could walk and, you know, like both my grandparents' homes were right near there. Um, they went to different Catholic parishes, were Catholic, but, um, families kind of knew each other, um both kind of Irish immigrant families um, on both sides, but to kind of get to the central you know, component of your, your question. Um, it's people like, you know, Bob Hope was an owner, part owner of the franchise at the time. Um, Diane Disney Miller, you know, married um, Diane uh, Disney was Walt Disney's only daughter um, or um, uh, one or two daughters, excuse me. Yes. Um, and, and um, you know, she married Ron Miller, who was a tight end for the Rams at the time, a friend of my dad's, um, they, to, you know, um, socialize and hang out and watch each other's kids. Um, you know, my mom would babysit for their kids and they had seven kids as well. And we had seven kids, um, in our family. Um, so there was just kind that of, story was up story. you mentioned,
2: right. I think in that section on Ron Miller, how the Rams players had even had some sort of special access to Disneyland at the time.
3: Yeah, they would get um, kind of benefit to, you know, think about it. Back then in 1954, 55, when Disneyland was built... It was really like out of the imagination of, of Walt Disney and he would go to Griffith Park to watch his daughter, you know, on the the merry go round and um, said, Wouldn't it be cool to create a like a, a, a land, if you will. Um, and literally from groundbreaking to opening it was a little over a year. Can you imagine today, you know, a theme park opening up in that regard? But yeah, no, they they that was part of the marketing of the park was, you know, the Ramsworth sports team and obviously, you know, it was some benefit to um, you know giving um, you know some some access. It also um, you know. Disney was new the show on in the national uh, television program started that same year in the 54, 55 timeframe. So it hadn't yet exploded nationally. So he was marketing at the same time. So he knew who were those key folks around the city. Um, you know, and his Diane had married Ron Miller when she was at, when they were at USC, um, you know, there. So he was, you know, Southern California folks. Um, but it really was, uh, Um, and back then, you know, Orange County was, was, was oranges, right? So like you bought this big tract of land and, and, you know, you hadn't had, you know, the the sprawl that you had had, um, you know, we just come accustomed to now, but in 1955, that was not, uh, it was still a pretty, uh, pretty open rural place.
2: Um, Yeah. What were some examples of uh, the Ram? I think you've already mentioned some of them um, in passing, but what were some of the Ram's innovations uh, in the 1950s?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the number one one was, you know, obviously being tied to Hollywood, but... (laughs) Um, so, you know, kind of one of the first kind of modern passing offenses, um, Sid Gilman, the coach who, you know, was the former coach at Cincinnati and Miami of Ohio, who's in the NFL hall of fame. Um, you know, the modern passing tree kind of comes through Sid Gilman, you know, just in terms of, you know, it was passed down to Don Coriel and then, you know, Joe Gibbs and, and Bill Walsh and all those folks. Um, but it's, you know, football innovates over time. So, you know, I would start first with kind of the innovative offense, you know, up until the, the, the 1950s, it really was like kind of a grinded out type of game and you had kind of two really big personalities and big talents in the quarterbacks, Norm Van Brocklin and, and Bob Waterfield to kind of open up, you know, an offense and they were breaking all kinds of records and, Elroy Hirsch, Crazy Legs Hirsch, their, their end, also Hall of Famer, and Tom Fears. They were catching balls all over the place. So, like, kind of offense was exciting. So it, it And the owner, Dan Reeves, at the time realized that offense sells tickets, too. People want to show up and, and watch the kind of long pass and, you know, the crowd screaming type of thing. And, you know, and the Coliseum, for folks who've been there, and I absolutely love going there, it's yeah. kind of an iconic place. And, you know, it's a big place, though. So when you get a big crowd, it's kind of electric. So you can imagine a you know, seventy, eighty yard touchdown pass, um, how a place completely explodes with emotion. Right. So that's one thing. I think, you know, a few of the other innovations I would say, um, you know, they were the first team to integrate. Um, you know, the first team to have African American players and that was a big deal. It was you know, the NFL at the time wasn't as big as major league baseball in kind of the American psyche or kind of daily life. It hadn't, you know, um, kind of caught up that until the 60s, but uh, and 70s, but uh, you know the Rams integrated a year before the Dodgers, right? And so folks forget about that. So that's an innovation. I mean, an innovation and a positive social innovation, right? Um, you know, they they were doing their small part, um, and partly that was to kind of get the the Coliseum contract. But um, you know, it was the right thing to do. Um, you know, you had Pete Rozelle, who was probably the most iconic owner, or excuse me. Um, Commissioner in History of Sports was there public relations man and then their, their general manager. So he was constantly thinking about new ways to market the team and, you know, through ticket sales or giveaways or, or what have you. So, you know, the list kind of goes on and on and you know, they would also, you know, really kind of embrace Hollywood and, and invite stars to games. And, you know, Bob Hope was there often with his wife and, and, you know, other um, actors and comedians, etc. And so um, they really tried to embrace that in a variety of different ways and kind really pushed the envelope. I mean, Sid Gillen was the first, one of the first coaches that really ever used film to, which now we just kind of laugh at, you know, video. Let's go to the videotape type thing. Um, but he would use it as a teaching tool and a learning tool, and you know, that was one of the first coaches who did that um,
2: in the NFL. So a lot about uh, this. Uh, talking about the kind of connection between Hollywood and the Rams. These uh, season end banquets. I knew very little about. I mean, mm-hmm. I had heard about them here yep. and there, but I didn't quite realize how often they occurred and how um, ha, ha, the kind of Hollywood royalty they managed to court. Um,
3: could you talk about Yeah, it was a big deal. I, rem- I remember... Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question, Josh. I, I remember hearing stories from my parents um, about the banquets. Um, you know, they had these old-time photographs that um, I didn't put it in the book um, just because the layout was a little, a little, a little squirrely. But um, you know, they had these. They would take like the the one photo of the entire room at one moment in the evening, mm-hmm. and table after table, and players all over the place. But also stars and actors and actresses, you know, peppered throughout the room, and it was kind of like a gala way to celebrate the, the season give awards and you know at the same time have a good time and you know you you you'd laugh now but um you know, you'd see the smoke kind of billowing up, you know, because people were smoking and drinking and having a having a good time. But, you know, it was fun for, I think, both the athletes and, you know, folks in the Hollywood community to kind of gibbets with one another. So it became kind of a glamorous, um, you know, party to go to.
2: Who are some of the other um, Rams whose stories get um, shared in, in, in Hollywood's team?
3: uh great question i, I talked to a lot of players um you know former players and teammates of my dad's and others throughout the throughout the book um and interviewing you know everyone from you know frank gifford for example who you know longtime giant but he was um, born and raised in los angeles and went to usc and he told me a lot of a lot of interesting stories about what it was like, um, you know, to to be in LA at the time. Um, you know, you come back in the off season, that type of thing. Um, you know, he was recruited to be an actor, um, did some, you know, some acting, but then went into broadcasting, obviously. Uh, but other people like. That I had spoken with Les Richter, who was one of the people at my dad's um, funeral, who was one of the inspirations because he was telling a lot of stories. He was a, um, you know, traded for 11 or 12 players at the time. Um, you know, just an incredible uh, linebacker and defensive player. Um, you know, people like Dwayne Putnam, who was my dad's best friend on the team, who um, was a really solid player, went on to have a long, distinguished assistant coaching career. But he was just one of, the, again, like my, like my dad, just one of those solid people that kind of makes things go so you know person after person I talked to Art Donovan when he was still alive and, and when I started the book in 2002 you know I put it away on the shelf for a few years so you know I was able to talk to a number of folks over over a series of years um, Andy Robustelli was another Charlie Trippi who played for the Cardinals I was trying to capture both people that I played with my dad and played in other cities but also could give perspective Art Donovan for example played for the Colts but he loved you know talk to him at length um, he wrote a book called Fatso. He was a long-time uh, sure. Baltimore Colt. And uh, he was a tremendous guy. He would just t- tell funny stories about what it was like to play in California and how he loved to come to California and feel the sunshine on his skin and drink beers after the game and get yelled at by Norm Van Brotten, <laughs> You know, while it was all happening. <laughs> yeah.
2: One of my favorite characters in the book is uh, Ron Waller.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Ron was a good friend of my dad's, obviously married Marjorie, who's part of the post serial family fortune. Right. So, um, you know, they, you know, my dad told a story when I was a kid, um, you know, ironically now with President Trump in the White House being at Mar-a-Lago, you know, because it was in the post serial family back then. Um and you know, going to these glamorous places. Um they had a home, a beautiful home outside of Washington, so they you know, Washington DC, so when they played the Redskins they would go there as well. Um, but you know, the, the crux of your question is kind of like what it's like to you know, for my parents who are really just simple people, um um again, both kind of, you know, you know come from irish immigrant families um you know those kind of modest means you know my my dad's the reason my, my dad moved to los Angeles is because his his father had lost his job for, at U.S. Steel in Pittsburgh in the Depression and moved out where there was opportunity in L.A. But so, just kind of give you that background, my, my mother had a similar story with her parents, um, kind of hardworking, scrapping type people. But, you know, my parents would show up at these parties, and, and Ron was, you know, just a self of the earth guy, according to my dad and my mom, and, um, you know, would make everyone feel at home and have a good time. And, you know, my dad was a switched beer can type guy. <laughs> just, yeah. Uh, at the time, that was her uh, shady or whatever they drank back then, um, you know, was really simple. And so, um, you know, I was trying to tell stories about, um, you know, what, what the friendships were like, you know, because at the end of the day, that's what we all, you know, care about our families and friends and, and um, you know, how teammates and teams, good teams, you know, um, support each other, but also, you know, really strong friendships come out of it. And it's You know, it's
2: funny, you hear a lot of cliches about the, the sort of grid workman-like offensive linemen in the trenches nowadays. Mm -hmm. But, you know, meanwhile, they're making, you know, $15 million a year sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, What I find really um, interesting about the Rams teams of the 1950s and 60s, these, these ostensible glamour teams, is that, yeah, they're famous and they're, the life of the party and they are, they have celebrity cachet. Um, and they know all the right people, but they still need to get jobs in the off season.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. My mom, my dad was a, uh was a high school um, substitute teacher, uh, uh, taught history. Yeah. Um, 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 uh, ironically, in a school called George Washington Carver, which eventually went on to, there was a setting for the, the White Shadows, or sure. show in the 70s and 80s. You know, other folks, you know, Andy Deli was, um, you know, uh, selling in his family's um, sporting goods store or, or you know, some folks like Frank Gifford and Elroy Hurst were extras or actors. Um so yeah, they needed money. I mean, you know, the the story that my parents would always tell is that my mother was a third grade teacher at the time before um, you know, she really started to have kids and and, and um, kind of do that as a full-time profession, but they basically made the exact same amount of money. Um, you know, can you imagine today a third grade teacher, elementary school teacher and an NFL offensive lineman essentially making the same amount, it's yep. just kind of unheard of, you know? Wild. Wild. Totally wild. Um, last question
2: though, if over the course of your answer, I think of another question I reserve the right to, mm-hmm. uh, to present you with one Um Sure. Given what you uh, learned about the um, the culture of the Rams in the 1950s and the success of the Rams in the 1950s and the uh, innovations of the Rams mm-hmm. back then, are there any uh, lessons you could uh, extract for the current uh, for the current team trying to kind of rekindle this romance with uh,
3: Los Angeles? great question. I think one is to embrace where they are, right? I mean, I always... I was incredibly excited when they moved um, back to Los Angeles. Um, You know, some folks would call it a restoration, not a relocation. I I don't like when cities lose their teams, but, um, you know, feeling the... You know, the, the 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 it was like some you know something getting ripped out of you when they moved, right? And I, I felt there were a lot of mistakes made at the time by the ownership and and not embracing the city and marketing the team and doing what needs to be done and kind of taking the, the easy road of of money in front of them in St. Louis. And as opposed to kind of, you know, seeing the greater opportunity in LA, which there is, because it's a much larger city and a much larger market. That being said, I think, you know, my advice for the, the ownership and the team is to embrace the city that they play in. And, you know, they're doing that and, you know, build a team that's durable and will win. And, you know, and I think, it's encouraging that they're they hired a, a young offensive mind and Sean McVay, who's gonna throw the ball and you know hopefully Jared Goff will be a, a longtime starter and, and a good player in LA but it's it's you have to win first and but embrace the city and embrace its history and I mean you started the conversation you know Josh about saying you know LA sometimes forget its history it forgets its history. But it's a it's a great place with a strong history and and a strong history of football um, that's that's groundbreaking. Um, and you know, the fact that the Rams are back, I think is, uh, an incredible opportunity for them. And also an incredible opportunity for young kids who didn't grow up with football, NFL football, um, to see it up close and, uh, um, in person. And then the, the going to a game in the Coliseum is amazing. I live in Virginia just cause it's happened, happened to be where we've been for a number of years, but we bought season for the Rams and I go out a couple of times a year. My wife thinks I'm absolutely crazy, but you know, that's fandom, I guess. That's right. I actually did
2: think of one more question um, while you were sure. while you were speaking. Um, you're um, you're in politics. You alluded to working for Senator Dianne Feinstein. Uh, so mm-hmm. um, I guess I I can't help but wonder uh, what was more difficult uh, for you uh, to um, watch the Rams' performance on the field last season or uh, while that was going on, watch the sort of um, transition (laughs) uh, of power from uh, the Obama administration to the
3: (laughs) Donald Trump administration? Yeah, full disclosure, it's a great question. Uh, I was an Obama administration appointee as chief of staff at the Department of Commerce for Secretary Penny Pritzker, um, who I still work with today in her investment firm. But um it was tough. It was uh it was uh equally distressing, I will put it that way. Okay. <laughs> seeing the Rams start off strong, uh three in one record and then fall to the wayside. Um and then obviously seeing uh um you know an election not go not go the way I had hoped, but uh you know that's the breaks. So you got to pick yourself up and kind of, um, you know, put it back together, and then uh, figure out what the answers are. Well, just like you do on a football field. Hopefully, the Rams will figure it out this year. Hopefully, hopefully.
2: Um, well, thank you uh, for joining us on The Greatest Show on grass, Mr. Hawk. Uh, Jim Hawk's book is uh, Hollywood's Team, Grid, Glamour, and the 1950s Los Angeles Rams. It really belongs on the mantle of uh, any Los Angeles Rams fan um, uh, as obsessed with uh, their history as we are on this show. I know it's a passion project of yours, and I think uh, it's a just a great testament to the team and to your, to your father, to your father's legacy. So thank you. And finally, we return to a segment that we call film study in which we dissect an episode or scene from a film or TV show that prominently features Los Angeles Rams. Thankfully, there are thousands to choose from, many of which we've chronicled on our greatest show on Grass Tumblr. In honor of John Hawk and the 1950s Rams, I thought it'd be the perfect occasion to discuss CBS's never-aired television pilot, Brock Callahan, a crime-fighting Beverly Hills private investigator who's also a former L.A. Rams guard. Produced in 1959... The pilot was based on a mystery series by renowned crime writer William Campbell Galt. In Galt's books, Callahan is a colorful character with a penchant for Einlicker beer, getting mixed up with suspicious dames, and not being afraid to pull out his 38 when the occasion arises. Once in a while, he even hangs out with his ex-Rams teammates. If you're a regular listener of this show, you're probably not surprised. I'm obsessed with the Brock Callahan mysteries. But a few years ago, I managed to obtain a rare copy of the pilot that was shot in 1959 for CBS. Callahan is played by the hunky actor Ken Clark, best known for his roles in Attack of the Giant Leeches and a bunch of spaghetti westerns and sword and sandal epics. The pilot, titled The Silent Kill, begins in the packed Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, where Callahan's old team, the Rams, are playing. After a couple of shots from the game, we cut to Callahan sitting on the Rams' sideline next to none other than Rams' head coach at the time, Sid Gilman, who's crouching in front of Rams' safety Don Burrows, running back John Arnett, and linebacker Dick Doherty. Cue Callahan's narration as per the classic crime drama.
1: Coach Sid Gilman and my former teammates, the Rams, were taking their lumps from the Redskins in an exhibition game. While here I sat, old Brock the Rock Galley. And you think my mind was on the play? No, sir. All I could think about was Beverly Hills' dimmest private eye, me. My office rent was due in the morning. My car needed a new muffler. And my best girl was working late tonight.
2: A best girl named Jan, who on that very day witnessed a man hanging from a noose next to her office on La Cienega.
1: Said what that new halfback needs is a ball with a handle on it. His wife won't even let him hold a baby anymore. Mr. Callahan, there's a lady asking for you. In the Rams locker room? On the phone. Says it's urgent. Says her name's Jan.
2: Over the phone, Jan tells Callahan what she witnessed, and Brock calms her down before calling the police.
0: Bascal. Lieutenant, this is Callahan. Brock Callahan? Say, what's the matter with the Rams? I understand there's seven points behind the
1: Redskins. Listen, Lieutenant, will you forget about the rams for a minute? My girl just called, and there's a man hanging by his neck in Hollander and Gilmore on La Cienega Boulevard. Why'd you say so before?
2: Callahan arrives at the scene of the apparent suicide where Jan is telling Lieutenant Pascal everything she knows about the victim. Then a uniformed cop interrupts them.
1: I closed up at 9 o'clock and... Lieutenant, two things, sir. The reporters are here and they want to come in.
0: Tell him I'll give him a statement as soon as we're finished in here. Jeff Hondler tried to kill himself once before about two years ago, but we got to him in time. What's the other thing? Middle of the second quarter, sir. The Rams followed up that field goal with a... Touchdown and a conversion. (laughs) (laughs) Ten to seven. Who says the Rams went to pieces when you retired? You always said, Lieutenant, not me. I still think you had a season or two left in you.
1: Oh, he's got more than that.
2: You never
0: know in this record.
2: The next day, Hollander's business partner, Michael Gilmore, hires Callahan to get to the bottom of things, claiming his partner was murdered and that Hollander's young second wife ought to be a suspect. Callahan visits the lieutenant to tell him he's been hired to investigate the suicide. Pascal nearly does a spit take. He thought this was an open and shut case.
1: So, I'm working on the Hollander case. (coughs) What? Gilmore thinks someone killed Hollander and he's paying me 500 bucks to prove it.
0: Gilmore's got more dollars than he's got sense. And do you believe him? You've been reading too many paperback novels. <sighs> Look, you were the best guard the Rams ever had. Why do you want to keep messing around this detective business anyway?
2: Callahan heads to the Beverly Hills Hotel and poolside finds Mrs. Linda Hollander, played by B-movie actress Barbara Darrow, tanning and drinking cocktails in a sexy black bathing suit. When Callahan tells her that his client suspects foul play in her husband's death, she immediately accuses Hollander's no good son, Ellison. So Callahan goes after Ellison. He finds him in judo practice. Turns out the kid's a black belt.
1: Mr. Hollander, my name's Callahan. Oh, sure, Brock the Rock. Never missed a game of yours, home games anyway. Going in for judo now? No, it's too late. Last season with the Rams, I could have used a little,
2: though. Ellison bristles when Callahan asks him where he was at the time of the crime. And that night, Callahan is attacked in front of his home by a judo-wielding perp with a stocking over his head who has just got to be Ellison. The next day, Callahan pays a visit to Lieutenant Pascal, where he's able to examine all the belongings that were on Hollander at the time of his death. Callahan remembers Gilmore telling him that Hollander had two cigarettes on him when he last saw him, an hour and a half before his death. But Hollander had two in his possession when he was found, and he was a chain smoker. Very interesting. Callahan tracks Linda to the San Fernando Art Institute just as she drives off with an art student named John Bowman. Meanwhile, Pascal's autopsy team has concluded that Hollander was killed as a result of a chopping blow across the Adam's apple. Callahan heads back to the Art Institute and spots Bowman's car and finds him inside his studio. Here's Callahan confronting Bowman in the pilot's climax.
1: You and Linda parked a block away from Hollander's shop under a street lamp. Then you set up a trap, didn't you? I've got nothing to say to you. You were necking deliberately where you'd be seen. Hollander had to come that way to get the hotel and he could hardly miss seeing Linda's pink station wagon. He jammed on his brakes and came charging over. Linda got in his car for a quiet family-type chat. And that's when you moved in and chopped him across the Adam's apple. Linda ran back to her car, drove to the hotel and set her alibi into motion. You drove around in Hollander's car for about an hour. The body on the floor. Somehow you kept the body warm. My guess is you rigged up an electric blanket, Then just after 8.30, you strung him up and left his car out back.
2: Yes, an electric blanket. Bowman attacks Callahan with the chisel he was using on his sculpture and the to-do battle. The police arrive just as Callahan pancakes Bowman as if he were going up against a redskin pass rusher back at the Coliseum.
0: Now, why couldn't you attack like that two years ago against the
1: 49ers? I was just a growing boy in those
2: days. It's not terribly hard to ascertain why Brock Callahan didn't ultimately get green lit. Its story is convoluted, its characters are wooden. It's a lackluster adaptation of the books. Though, for the purposes of this podcast, I think it's a fascinating Ram's relic. For one thing, in having the artist Bowman attack Callahan with a chisel, It's almost as if the story is commenting on Callahan's unlikely hero status. An old football cliché is to call a player chiseled out of stone. It's a cliché rarely applied to offensive linemen. Watching Callahan fend off a chisel, it's as if his character is saying that he doesn't need to be chiseled to be a star. Even a guard can be the hero and this isn't so obvious, even if you only consider the Hollywood roles by LA Rams or depictions of LA Rams. Starring roles by offensive linemen are just few and far between. Tackle Doug France showed up in North Dallas 40, had minor roles in BJ and the Bear, Sheriff Lobo, and The Greatest American Hero, oh, and a small part in Riptide as Mean Mick Matthews. Hall of Fame guard Tom Mack appeared in The Six Million Dollar Man, Banachek, and a hysterical scene in Woody Allen's Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Sex, But Were Afraid to Ask. But that's kind of it. That an entire mystery series could revolve around a Rams offensive lineman as hero, a series that could very well have been a network television show, should remind us that you don't have to be a skill player to be a star. That an offensive lineman can possess grit and glamour. At least in Hollywood, he can. Let the moon break your heart. Thank you for listening to The Greatest Show on Grass. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and then review it on iTunes and recommend it to the Rams fans in your lives, whether they've been rooting for the team for 63 years or one year.
1: Too many miles.